All right, so I'm going to say a few words, but not too many. Uh, well, that's probably a lie. <laughs> and, and then there's a bunch of questions that have been gathered, and I, I'd like to answer them because I think that you heard me quite a lot today, or most of you did. And uh, the questions, are, answering questions is often a good idea. I mean, I didn't really know. It, it seems that the majority of the people who've been watching, especially on YouTube, and also coming to see me in public, and particularly with the biblical lectures, it's been men, and that's really shocked me, especially with regards to the biblical lectures, you know, because it's just, well, first of all, the fact that anybody comes to them actually is a shock to me, but and the fact that it's the majority of them are, you know, men between, say, 20 and 40, that seems to be roughly the demographic is really... I'm I'm not exactly sure what to think about that. I mean, it has to do, I think, in part with what you might describe as a crisis in 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 our conceptualization of masculinity at the individual level, and also with the undermining of the idea of masculinity at a social level. And I think about it as a the logical extension of the Nietzschean proclamation of the death of God, and. I, you may know this or you may not. I mean, Nietzsche was a very intense critic of, of institutional Christianity in particular, like an unbelievably devastating critic. And I wouldn't necessarily say an enemy, although Nietzsche is a very complex thinker, but, you know, you're not necessarily an enemy of an institution if the criticisms that you level at it are have some validity, right? And he wasn't, I, I wouldn't say he was a critic of Christ. He was a critic of the instantiation of Christianity in, in dogmatic structures and, and a critic of the corruption. But in any case, you know, when he announced the death of God back in the late 1800s, he, he said, God is dead and we have killed him. And, and then to paraphrase, he said, we'll never find enough water to wash away the blood. And that's that's not a triumphant statement by any stretch of the imagination, although people often only use the first part of that quote as if it was, you know, a, a T-shirt slogan or something like that. And slogan, by the way, is derived from two Welsh words, sluag, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing incorrectly, and germ. So sluag is S-L-U-A-G-H, and germ is G-H-A-I-R-M, and it means battle cry of the dead. And so that's something to really know when people are tossing slogans at you, because what it means is that they're basically inhabited by either the spirits of the dead, that's one way of looking at it, or by the spirits of those who would like to have you dead, which is another. And so it's very, very creepy. It's an, and, and to look at the etymology of words is really something. But anyways, you know, Nietzsche announced that God was dead and 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 as far as he was concerned, and also Dostoevsky, who was writing at the same time, that meant that the cornerstone of Western civilization had been demolished and that the entire edifice that rested on that was going to crumble and fall. I mean, that was really what, and so he predicted that the consequence of that would be an immense spread of nihilism, which Tolstoy, if you're interested in this, Tolstoy actually documents exactly how that happened to him in Russia in the late 1800s in his book Confessions, which is a very short book and very much well, worth reading. It's a great documentation of how the, the disintegration of a belief system can produce intense suicidality because Tolstoy was extremely suicidal right at the height of his career. He said, 
He was world famous. He had a he had a tremendously successful family. He was the master of his states. Everywhere he went, people were celebrating him. And for years, he couldn't walk around his own estate with a gun or a rope because he was afraid he would either shoot or, or hang himself. And so, and he traced that to his the demolition of his belief in God. And and it's very well. It's a it's an absolutely brilliant book. And it ends in a, in a really interesting manner with a particular dream that he has. But you know the there's an idea in Christianity, say, of divine masculinity, and it's associated with courage. And it's not, it's not aimed merely at women, because in Christianity, Christ is the figure of salvation for men and women. And so this isn't the, the idea that divine masculinity, the divine masculine spirit, is only something that pertains to men, is just not an accurate idea. But it's it's still the the assault on the on the symbolic edifice of Western civilization is definitely an assault on the idea of masculinity. And you know we have in our culture increasingly adopted the idea that the activities of men, so let's call that the patriarchy, which is a word I just despise in every possible way. Um, you know that that's in 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 in, in implicitly and perhaps even explicitly evil and destructive. And that's a really bad idea. You know, I had a friend who committed suicide when he was in his mid-40s. And uh, he was actually quite a promising person when he was young, very smart person. He was quite artistically talented, and he was a good friend of mine. And he ended up driving his truck out into the middle of the British Columbia wilderness and attaching a uh, hose to the exhaust pipe and, you know, asphyxi asphyxiating himself. Just when he turned 40, he'd, he'd published a small anthology of books and he wrote me, he phoned me to tell me that he had published this, this anthology of his stories. And, uh, he was very proud of that and the stories were very good. And then the next day he drove out into the, into the wilderness and killed himself. And he was one of these people who really suffered deeply from this assault on masculinity and, and masculine, the masculine desire to go out in the world and make changes and build things and transform things. And he had been taught in some sense that that was all associated with the evil that mankind was doing in the world and the destruction of the planet. And he sort of took this, I would call it a nihilistic Buddhist approach to life and um, believed that the best thing he could do for the planet, let's say, was to squelch everything within him that wanted to move out into the world and and not engage in any activity because that was part of this destructive force and i mean that's just you know like let, well let's make no mistake about it you know societies have a tyrannical aspect we talked about that this morning and individuals have to w be on guard against their own proclivity for deceit and arrogance and malevolence and all of that you don't want to be uh, uh naive about the structure of the world but to to generalize past that and assume that that active life to to live and to expand outward as a as a as a human being as a man is a is intrinsically a bad thing and that your and that your your life on earth is somehow an assault on cosmic order just because of your existence is absolutely a terrible, terrible idea, and it's it's a it's a psychologically murderous idea, and it there's nothing in it that's good for anyone at all, and and that's an ethos that I don't own, I think that's not only spread throughout our culture, partly because of the assault on the idea of divine masculinity, let's say, but that's actually that's it's not only spread, but it's actually actively taught, and I suppose that's to some degree why many of you 
school your children at home. And, you know, that's, that's understandable because I think it's, if anything, oh, that's just getting worse and worse as far as I can tell. I'm watching what's happening in the Canadian education system and it, and, and watching what's happening, what the people who are teaching the teachers are teaching them. And it just absolutely leaves me like virtually speechless. I cannot believe the degree to which um, this anti-human propaganda is being propagated through the education system starting, you know, in, in Ontario now, they're actually starting to teach children postmodern interpretations of literature in the lower grades, you know, that, that there's nothing about literature that isn't merely an expression of some kind of dominant power force that's associated with toxic masculinity. It's essentially that, and it's just, it's so, so malevolent that's the best word for it that and i i can't believe the rate at which it's spreading systemically you know i've been attacking the ontario institute and the studies of education quite actively in canada apparently it's made me rather unpopular among my colleagues because i keep calling it rat's nest central which they seem to <laughs> they seem to object they seem to object to that characterization so but I don't know what else, how else to deal with an institution who thinks that its job is to teach teachers to propagandize children, because I can't think of anything that's actually, well, that's not true. I can think of things that are worse than that, but those things are, that I'm thinking of are pretty bad. So, you know, so, so anyways, you know, the, it's necessary for us to reclaim a vision of what it, const, of what it means to be um, a moral, noble, forthright, courageous, truthful man, because if we're the opposite of that, if we're weak men, say, you know, because part of the reason that masculinity is under assault is because of this identification with masculinity, of masculinity with malevolence and destruction. And what what the people who are promoting that idea don't understand is that it's not strong men that are frightening in that sense it's weak men right it's weak men who are underhanded and who use deceit and who can't establish a relationship with a woman without without conniving and lying and using psychopathic uh behavioral patterns or using alcohol or using drugs or like they're underhanded and and sneaky and horrible and to identify that with masculine strength is unbelievably well it's actually it's sign of a psychological disorder in some sense and i think a lot of the women, let's say, the activist types that are pushing this have never had a positive relationship with a man, and, and, and they can't distinguish male competence from tyrannical power. That's the big problem. They, they can't. So if the man is weak and, and maybe able to be dominated or, or will act as an ally, which is another word I just can't tolerate, um, then it's as if they've rendered themselves harmless and that they're therefore good, right? And harmless men are not good. They're just weak. And weak men are unbelievably dangerous. So, so. So, you know, the right attitude is to make your sons strong and and to also understand what that strength means and to, to ally that strength with a moral vision. And like a strong man is truthful and honorable and courageous and all of those things. And, you know, in our society, we've become so cynical that 
words like that seem, in, in some sense, they ring hollow, you know, but that's because people have been bandying them about uh, casually, but they're not to be bandied about casually because the, the fate of the world, the fate of civilization depends on the instantiation of those virtues. And so um, that's, that's what, well, that's what we need to make a case for and revitalize. There's, there's just no doubt about that. And, and I, I think more and more that that can be done technically. It's partly why I really like the work of Jean Piaget, the, the, uh, and as opposed, I mean, I'm an admirer of Freud and an admirer of Jung and the psychoanalysts. And I've learned a lot from the great clinicians of the 20th century, but Piaget, Jean Piaget, who is, who is French, um, he, he has a, he had a different idea of socialization than Freud. You know, Freud kind of thought that you were good, that morality was a consequence of the inhibition of the id, which was the natural, like primal, instinctual, unconscious forces that sort of flowed through people, that that was regulated by something like a social tyrant or an internal tyrant, the superego, you know, and so that there was a battle between those two constantly, and the ego was sort of crushed in the middle of the superego and the, and the id. But Piaget, I think, I think that only happens when development goes wrong, because the id, the id forces, and we, we could identify them now with the function of brain systems like the hypothalamus, which are responsible for rage and for lust and for the really fundamental motivations that we share with animals and that, that keep us alive biologically. With, with, from the Piagetian perspective, you don't so much inhibit them as um, integrate them into more and more complex and sophisticated games. And so you can see, well, you might say, well, man has to inhibit his aggression, and that's actually wrong. What a man has to learn to do, and of course, this is also the case with women, but men are on average stronger and more aggressive than women, and so perhaps they're more dangerous in, in some ways. Not in all ways, that's for sure, but in some ways. You know, a sophisticated child learns how to integrate that aggression and to become stronger because of it, not weaker. So, you know, if you watch kids playing a, a sports game, the, the kids who are aggressive but well-socialized are often extremely good at the game because they have a competitive spirit and they want to win, but they're sophisticated enough to only utilize that aggression when it's absolutely necessary, you know. So, well, I can give you an example. Like, my son was on is on a hockey team right now. He's about 25, and he's always been a good sportsman in ever since he was a little kid. And, you know, they were playing, uh, he's an adult now, they're playing in an adult league, and it was a community league, so, it's, you know, it's not that competitive. But they had a game a week ago or so, and they were ahead like 9-4, and then they just stopped trying as hard to score, you know. It was like they kind of made the point already, and there was no reason to humiliate their opponents. That, 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 that wasn't appropriate. And so, you know, that's a good example of the socialization of aggression, you know, because someone who is basically just a, you know, a, a, a coward or, 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 or bitter or, or, or who was using the game as a, an excuse to let out resentment and hatred would just continue with the humiliation of the opponent. And, you know, that's, that's no way to behave. It's, 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 it's beneath it's contemptuous that's that's the right way of thinking about it so you know the like when one of the things i've learned from carl jung too is that um he has this idea of the integration of the shadow which is really an incredibly brilliant idea and that you know that that people have well this capacity for extreme darkness and, and all you need to do is have casual familiarity with 
with the history of the world to understand that, you know, a human being is a very, very dangerous creature. And if you don't know that about yourself, then, well, then you don't know anything about yourself. That's one way of thinking about it. But you also don't see there's a weird twist to that because it's actually not the case that you can have any respect for yourself until you know the degree to which you're capable of being monstrous because you, you just don't have any caution in relationship to your own life until you understand that you you're you, you have the capacity for mayhem you know and so that's the first thing is is that you can't really respect yourself until you know that that's part of you because you don't act carefully enough you know so i just wrote this book and in that there's a chapter it's called 12 rules for life and one chapter is don't let your children do anything that make you dislike them and i'm really serious about that because children are often treated monstrously by their parents and part of the reason for that is the parents don't know how to discipline the children properly and so then the children who are you know pushy and and are always pushing the limits because they need to find out where the limits are they act in ways that actually irritate and annoy their parents, and, and sometimes chronically. And then the parents build up tremendous levels of resentment for being manipulated and dominated by their children. And then they do terrible things to their children, you know, like sometimes physically brutal things, but often more like long-term, multi-decade psychological warfare. And it's way better to, like, know that your child should not mess with you because their destiny is in your hands. And so if you don't discipline them so that you actually like them, then you will absolutely take your revenge on them. And then not only that, you will not help them learn how to be the sort of people that other people really like to have around, right? Because that's what you want for your child. When You want your four-year-old to know how to behave well enough so that when you take them among strangers, they have enough respect, let's say, and enough self-regulation, enough capacity to observe the social situation so that they're pleasant and friendly and open and smiling and so that everybody likes them. And people will like your children at the drop of a hat unless there's a reason not to. And so by disciplining your child properly, not only do you protect them from you as a monster, which is absolutely necessary, but then you actually open up the social world to them because everywhere they go, everybody smiles at them and is happy to see them. And it's like, that's the thing you do if you, if you, if you're awake and careful, but also afraid of your own capacity. And you should be. You, if you, if you're not afraid of your own capacity for mayhem and violence and revenge and all of that, then you do not walk carefully enough on the surface of the earth. And that's a very, very bad idea. So it is the case that, you know, this capacity for, for brutality and force and, and aggression resides in everyone, but that doesn't mean that that can't be harnessed as as something like courage and indomitability and the willingness to stand up in the face of danger and all of those things, and also the capacity to, what would you say, just to stand and, and to move in a manner that indicates to people that you're not to be trifled with. And that's that's one of the things that keeps society in order. It's 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 the essence of respectability. It has nothing to do with weakness. It's it's not it's not the it's not the safety of a castrated animal. It's not that at all. It's danger and power under voluntary control. And that's that's the essence of properly developed masculinity. And I would as I said before, I also believe that that's characteristic of women, because women also have to 
have that capacity for danger mastered. But, well, we're talking more about masculinity at the moment, and I think it's more relevant because it isn't the matriarchy that's under attack, but after all, it's the patriarchy that's under attack. And it's also necessary, and I'll close with this, it's also necessary to know that women who assume that, or people, but who assume that you know, men are this homogenous group of power-hungry tyrants and that that's the force that's built our civilization. It's essentially the expression of a tyrannical force are suffering from something like a one-sided psychiatric delusion because that is just, well, at best it's half true, right? Because, of course, societies have a tyrannical aspect, but it, it blinds them completely to the absolutely remarkable achievements of human civilization and also denigrates the role that women played in establishing that. You know, it's to, to say that our, our culture is fundamentally patriarchal and a consequence of male activity is also actually wrong because, you know, women and men have partnered throughout time. And it wasn't even until about 100 years ago that we scraped ourselves out of the muck enough to, to even start to develop a sophisticated civilization that offers this degree of luxury and protection. You know, in 1895, the average person in the Western world lived on less than a dollar a day. Like, which is basically the definition, and that's in today's money. That's that's below the UN's definition for poverty at the moment, you know. And so the idea that, you know, males as a group were some dominating force that kept everyone else down for the untold centuries of human development is as cynical a view of human history as you could possibly imagine, and it's just technically wrong. So we, we have to just do what we can to... Um, not let that view of humanity and of men and of women prevail. And so I told you I would talk about this way longer than I thought I would. So anyways, I'm going to stop with my remarks there. And 